If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high yield and high quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. Hey, this is Austin Miller. I'm a third year medical student at Mercer University. And today I will be narrating the immunology chapter of Crush Step 1, second edition. To start off, we're going to look at the lymphoid structures and the anatomy of the immune system. So to begin, primary lymphoid organs are organs that function as housing for immature progenitor cells to generate, mature, and educate new lymphocytes in an antigen-independent manner. The main examples of these organs include bone marrow for B cells and the thymus for T cells. Bone marrow is a critical primary lymphoid organ. It consists of two primary types, red marrow and yellow marrow. Red marrow is the bone marrow parenchyma and contains the hematopoietic stem cells which function in the formation of all blood cell lines, including B and T cells. Yellow marrow is the bone marrow stroma, or supportive tissue, and contains mostly fat. The thymus is the other primary lymphoid organ. Its embryologic origin is the epithelium of the third branchial pouch. Structurally, it is an encapsulated, bilobed organ situated in the anterior mediastinum. During early childhood, the thymus is large and is easily seen on a chest radiograph. However, as the individual ages, there is a natural regression and atrophy of the thymic tissue, and it becomes invisible on a chest film. The main physiologic immune function of the thymus is to act as a T-cell classroom for differentiation and maturation which occur as cells go from the outer cortex to the inner medulla of the thymus. The cortex of the thymus is a high cellular density region packed with immature T-cells awaiting positive or functional selection. Positive selection ensures that T-cells will have the bare minimum functionality 
of binding the cell surface protein major histocompatibility complex 1 or 2. Of note, most immature T cells that undergo this process never make it past this step and subsequently undergo apoptosis. It is of critical importance that these thymocytes are able to bind MHC. When mature, they will bind MHC1 if they differentiate into CD8 T cells and MHC2 if they differentiate into CD4 T cells. The corticomedullary junction of the thymus is a region where T cells undergo negative selection. Negative selection destroys cells that see the body's own normal antigens as foreign invaders. Negative selection is highly important in preventing autoimmune disease by destroying T cells that could potentially start an attack on the body's own cells. A T cell that has made it through positive selection is presented with self-antigen. If the specificity of the binding is too strong, an apoptotic signal will be given to that particular T cell. Of note, some autoreactive T cells are able to make it through the negative selection phase, but are eliminated by peripheral mechanisms such as energy or regulatory T cells. However, if peripheral mechanisms also fail, then this sets the stage for potential predisposition to autoimmunity. The medulla of the thymus is a pale, low cellular density with mature T cells having already gone through positive and negative selection. Moving on to secondary lymphoid organs, these are sites where lymphocytes undergo differentiation or increased specificity and clonal expansion or increased number in an antigen-dependent fashion, meaning differentiation and expansion occurs when an invader is thought to be present. Examples of secondary lymphoid organs include lymph nodes, spleen, tonsils, adenoids, and mucosal-associated lymphoid tissue, or MALT. Lymph nodes are encapsulated and trabeculated secondary lymphoid organs with many afferent vessels, and single or few efferent vessels. In other words, there are many ways in and only one way out. The specific functions are determined by anatomic position within the node, that being the cortex, the medulla, and the paracortex areas. Flow through a lymph node starts with the afferent lymphatic vessel, goes to the subcapsular sinus, then to the trabecular sinus, and finally to the medullary sinus, where it drains into the afferent lymphatic vessel. Looking more closely at the regions, the medulla of the lymph node consists primarily of cords or densely packed lymphocytes and sinuses that contain reticular cells and macrophages or histiocytes. The paracortex is the area in the deep cortex containing the high endothelial venules where both B and T cells enter from the blood. T cells are concentrated within the paracortex. Hence, when a cellular adaptive immune response occurs, the paracortex enlarges. The cortex is the area where B cells migrate and arrange in follicles. The primary follicles are densely packed and dormant, whereas the secondary follicles form after activation by antigen response, and are large and have pale germinal centers. 
Figure 6.1 gives a good illustration of a lymph node with all the different regions, and also what one would look like under a histological stain. Aside from the lymph nodes, the spleen is another critical secondary lymphoid organ. It is a critical component of both the reticuloendothelial system in hematology and immunology. The spleen is structurally and functionally divided into two pulp divisions. The red pulp contains long vascular channels and a fenestrated basement membrane, allowing for filtration of the red blood cells. Older, senescent red blood cells are filtered into the sinusoids, but are unable to re-enter the circulation and are phagocytized by splenic macrophages. The white pulp contains the periarterial lymphatic sheath, or PALS, which contains T-cells and follicles that contain B-cells. It is important to remember some of the findings present after splenectomy, the first being modest thrombocytosis. This occurs because the spleen can store up to one-third of total body platelets, so its removal allows more to circulate in the blood. Another finding would be Howell Jolly bodies, which are nuclear remnants in RBCs, there would also be a poor response to some vaccines and a higher risk to infection by encapsulated organisms. To remember the organisms that people are susceptible to after a splenectomy, we use the mnemonic SHINS, where the S stands for strep pneumo, the H for H flu, the N for Neisseria meningitidis, and the last S for salmonella. Now that we've reviewed the basics of lymphoid structures, let's move on to how they function, looking at innate versus adaptive immunity. The innate immune system is characterized by its fast and nonspecific response to infection as well as its lack of immunological memory. It allows for an individual to have basic immunity before developing adaptive immunity or to have a baseline immune system before learning to fight specific pathogens that are encountered. The innate immune system recognizes foreign antigens that are highly conserved over time and across pathogenic species. For example, lipopolysaccharide, or LPS, is a component of the cell wall conserved between gram-negative bacteria. Toll-like receptors are able to recognize LPS and, once bound, activate the release of inflammatory cytokines. Constituents of the innate immunity include phagocytes, of which neutrophils, macrophages, and dendritic cells fall under. Innate immunity also includes natural killer cells and the complement system. It also includes epithelial barriers like the skin that prevent microbes from entering the body. The adaptive immune system is more advanced and is characterized by its slow initial response to a first-time antigen exposure and a more rapid and robust response during subsequent exposures secondary to immunologic memory. The adaptive immune system is able to generate a large diversity of antigen-specific responses. The adaptive immune system can be further divided into Homoral immunity, which consists of circulating antibodies, and cell-mediated immunity. 
Figure 6.2 gives a good overview of the cells involved in both the innate and adaptive immunity. Figure 6.3 gives a slightly more detailed overview of the innate and adaptive immunity, looking at factors like specificity and receptors. Now, let's talk about the cells of the immune system. The cells of the immune system all originate from hematopoietic stem cells found within the marrow of long tubular bones. These hematopoietic stem cells are multipotent, meaning they can form all blood cell types and have the capacity of self-renewal. These cells would differentiate to commit a cell down the path of either the myeloid or lymphoid cell lineages. The myeloid lineage consists of seven main cell types that we want to look at. The first being the monocyte, which is a phagocytic cell located in the bloodstream that will differentiate into tissue macrophages once stimulated. The next cell is the macrophage or tissue histiocyte, which is a differentiated monocyte capable of phagocytosis and synthesis and secretion of various cytokines, including interleukin-1, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, and interleukin-12. Also, it is considered an antigen-presenting cell. The next cell produced from the myeloid lineage is the dendritic cell. This is a cell with long cytoplasmic arms capable of efficient antigen presentation to lymphocytes. It is known as the professional antigen-presenting cell. Another type of myeloid cell is the neutrophil. It's a mature cell that has multi-lobe nucleus and contains toxic cytoplasmic granules with a potent bactericidal capability. Another similar cell is the eosinophil, which is a mature cell that has a bilobe nucleus with large pink granules containing major basic protein. Major basic protein functions in the attack against parasitic and helminthic infections. Basophils are also from the myeloid lineage and they are mature cells that have bilobe nucleus and large blue granules. The last important cell from the myeloid lineage that we need to consider is the mast cell. This is a cell with a small nucleus and large cytoplasmic granules containing histamine or other preformed allergic mediators, which play a role in allergies, hives, and anaphylaxis, which undergo further differentiation into either CD4 helper T-cells, CD8 cytotoxic T-cells, or regulatory T-cells, and memory T-cells. Moving on to the lymphoid lineage, there are three important cell types that we need to know. The first being B-cells, which undergo further differentiation into either memory B-cells or plasma cells, which secrete antibodies. T-cells, which can further differentiate into CD4 helper T-cells, CD8 cytotoxic T-cells, regulatory T-cells, or memory T-cells. Also included in the lymphoid lineage is natural killer cells. These are CD56 positive lymphocytes that contain cytoplasmic toxic granules such as granzymes and are able to kill malignant cells, virus-infected cells, or antibody-coated or opsonized cells. So to review, the myeloid lineage consists of Seven cell types, the monocyte, the macrophage, the dendritic cell, the neutrophil, the eosinophil, the basophil, and the mast cell. 
and the lymphoid lineage consists of three cell types, the B cell, the T cell, and the natural killer cell. Figure 6.4 gives an overview of humoral immunity versus cell-mediated immunity. Now that we know the lymphoid structure and the cell types, let's look at how we differentiate ourselves from everything else using the major histocompatibility complexes 1 and 2. Major histocompatibility complex, otherwise known as MHC, is a critical portion of the immune system's ability to discern self from non-self, as well as to detect when the body's own cells are either infected or have undergone malignant change. There are two major classes of MHC involved in human immune systems. These two classes are both structurally and functionally distinct from one another. MHC class 1 is present on all nucleated cells in the body, in addition to platelets. MHC class 1 is encoded by human leukocyte antigen genes, otherwise known as HLA. There are three types of HLA, HLA-A, HLA-B, and HLA-C. These HLA genes have specific diseases associated with them. Table 6.1 gives a good overview of these associations. MHC is a cell surface protein that displays peptide fragments from inside the cell on the outside. This is done by a cell loading antigen onto the MHC1 in the rough endoplasmic reticulum before the MHC1 is inserted into the cell membrane. Normally, the antigen loaded onto MHC1 is a self-antigen, and cytotoxic T cells, or CD8 T cells, will not react with it. If a virus infects a cell, however, the virus produces viral proteins using the host's cell machinery. These viral proteins will be loaded onto MHC1. This is how cytotoxic T cells confer immunity to viral infection. They recognize MHC1 with loaded viral antigen and target it for cytotoxic destruction if the proper co-stimulatory signal is present. And we'll talk about this in a little more detail later on. MHC class 2 is present only on antigen-presenting cells such as macrophages and dendritic cells, whereas MHC class 1 was encoded by HLA, A, B, and C. The MHC class 2 proteins are encoded by HLA-DP, HLA-DQ, and HLA-DR. Structurally, MHC class 2 is composed of two alpha and two beta subunits. After antigen-presenting cells phagocytize microbes, they process and load these antigens onto MHC2. Then, the MHC2 is inserted into the cell membrane for bonding and recognition by helper T cells. Helper T cells can then activate B cells or trigger local inflammation. Figure 6.5 gives a great comparison between the MHC class 1 and class 2 pathways. Next, we're going to move on and talk a little bit more about humoral immunity and B cells and antibodies. Humoral immunity is responsible for synthesizing soluble serum proteins called antibodies, or immunoglobulins, which have a variety of functions involved in eradication of infectious agents. Antibodies are composed of two light chains and two heavy chains that form a Y shape. The trunk of the Y is known as the constant fragment, or FC fragment, 
and the two branches are antigen binding fragments or FAB fragments. These chains are linked together by disulfide bonds. More specifically, the FC region is the constant region containing the carboxy terminal and various carbohydrate side chains and is important in both complement factor binding and determining the isotype of the immunoglobulin, or in other words, whether it is an IgM, IgG, IgA, or so on. The FAB region contains two antigen binding fragments at the amino terminal side that are important in determining the idiotype of the immunoglobulin, or in other words, the uniqueness of the site and specificity for only one antigen. The structure of an antibody can be viewed in figure 6.6. Antibody formation is accomplished by mature plasma B cells, which synthesize and release antibodies after they have been activated by appropriate mechanisms with antigen stimulation. There are nearly unlimited antigens, therefore, there are a number of mechanisms in place to ensure that there will be a B cell that can make the required antibody when needed. This process is called antibody diversity and consists of four main processes. The first being the random recombination of the light chain genes or VJ genes and the heavy chain genes or VDJ genes. The second main process is the random combination of the various heavy chains with light chains. The third process is somatic hypermutation, which occurs in germinal centers after antigen stimulation. The fourth and final process that contributes to antibody diversity is the addition of DNA nucleotides to the heavy and light chains by an enzyme called terminal deoxynucleotidal transferase, otherwise known as TDT. At baseline, a mature B cell will either express an IgM or IgD isotype on its cell surface. Isotype switching occurs after antigen stimulation and appropriate activation of a mature B cell, resulting in alternative splicing of mRNA. The resultant post-translational modification of mRNA dictates the isotype of plasma cell, whether it be IgA, IgG, or IgE. For step one, it is important to understand the differences between the different isotypes, so let's look at them more in depth. IgD is found on the surface of all mature B cells. Its function in serum is otherwise unknown. IgM is also found on the surface of mature B cells. As a serum immunoglobulin, it is produced in the primary or fast antigenic response and is found as either a monomer or more commonly as a pentamer, which consists of five IgM molecules linked together. The pentamer is more efficient at antigen trapping and complement fixation and activation. It is important to remember that the pentamer is very bulky and therefore cannot cross the placenta. IgG is another isotype that is the main immunoglobulin in the secondary or delayed or slow-onset antigenic response. It occurs as a monomer. It occurs as a monomer and has multiple functions, including the ability to fix complement, opsonize bacteria, and neutralize various toxins and viruses. 
is important to remember that since IgG does not form multimers, and therefore it can cross the placenta, so it is essential in providing passive immunity to the developing fetus. The next important isotype is IgA, which occurs as a monomer in the bloodstream and as a dimer when secreted. In its dimer form, it is linked by the secretory component attained from the epithelial cells before secretion. IgA is secreted onto mucosal surfaces, such as the gastrointestinal, genital, urinary, and respiratory tracts, to block attachment of pathogens to mucous membranes. IgE is another important isotype and it is implicated in the allergic response, or type 1 hypersensitivity, because it binds both mast cells and basophils and undergoes cross-linking after exposure to appropriate antigens. Now that we know the isotypes, let's walk through how a B cell becomes activated into an antibody-secreting plasma cell. Resting B cells have a high level of expression of surface immunoglobulins, IgM or IgD, and MHC class 2, but they do not secrete immunoglobulins. If they encounter their matching antigen, they will engulf it, digest it, and present it on their MHC class 2. A helper T cell subtype, Th2 cell, can then recognize the antigen on the MHC2 with its T-cell receptor, or TCR. The Th2 cell will then secrete specific cytokines, such as IL-4, IL-5, and IL-6, to stimulate B-cell proliferation, hypermutation, and isotype switching. Once a B-cell becomes a plasma cell, it is no longer able to proliferate because it is designed for maximal immunoglobulin secretion. Of note, it actually takes two signals to make Th2 cells secrete B-cell activating cytokines, the first signal being the TCR-MHC2 antigen interaction, and the second signal being CD40 to CD40 ligand interaction. There is also a T-cell independent way to activate B-cells. Non-peptide antigens cannot be presented to T-cells, but it is often important for the immune system to recognize these antigens. B-cell's response to these antigens is solely IgM release. No isotype switching or immunological memory is established after the encounter. When considering humoral immunity, it is important to take into account both active and passive immunity. When considering humoral immunity, it is important to take into account the way that a host develops or obtains antibodies to a specific antigen and this can be classified as either active or passive immunity. Active immunity signifies that the host's immune system came directly in contact with an antigen and developed its own immunity. There's a subcategorical breakdown of the active immunity into naturally acquired active immunity, which consists of direct pathogen exposure, and artificially acquired active immunity, which consists of exposure through vaccines. Passive immunity, on the other hand, occurs when the host was given its supply of antibodies by an outside source. This can be naturally or artificially acquired. For example, naturally acquired passive immunity occurs most commonly when a mother transfers her actively formed antibodies to her offspring, both transplacentally through IgG and through breast milk using IgA. 
In contrast, artificially acquired passive immunity occurs when antibodies are administered as medication, which is the case in tetanus antitoxin, antivintums, digitalis antibody fragments, or intravenous aminoglobulin. To finish up talking about humoral immunity, let's look at what happens when things go wrong in the B-cell maturation process or if deficiencies occur. The first immunodeficiency that we'll look at caused by a defect in B-cells is X-linked A-gamma globulinemia, otherwise known as Bruton A-gamma globulinemia. This results from a mutation in the receptor tyrosine kinase, or PTK receptor. This prevents the maturation of B-cells, thereby halting immunoglobulin production. Another immunodeficiency that results from B-cell dysfunction is common variable immunodeficiency. This is the most common form of primary B-cell deficiency, with characteristically low levels of measurable IgG and IgA, and occasionally IgM. This results in immunodeficiency and is associated with higher rates of lymphomas and gastric cancer. Hyper-IgM syndrome is another common immunodeficiency likely to show up on step 1. It presents with normal levels of B cells, but with a diminished level of IgG and IgA, and with high levels of IgM. It's associated with a higher risk of pneumocystis infections. This condition usually results from the inability to undergo isotype class switching secondary to deficiencies in CD40 ligand on the Th2 cell. The final high-yield B-cell immunodeficiency is selective IgA deficiency. This is the most common immunoglobulin deficiency associated with increased respiratory, gastrointestinal, and genitourinary infections. In selective IgA deficiency, a risk for anaphylaxis with blood product transfusions is present. Let's take a look at T-cells and their role in cell-mediated immunity and immune system regulation. T-cells are critical in the regulation, activation, and action of the adaptive immune system. As we discussed in Part 1, T-cells stem from the lymphoid lineage of hematopoietic differentiation. They are born in the bone marrow but are educated in the thymus. Within the thymus, both positive and negative selection occurs, resulting in specialized T-cells with different clusters of differentiation, or CD, on their cell surface. The main cell types are CD4 and CD8 T-cells. CD4 T-cells are otherwise known as the helper T-cells and will undergo further differentiation after appropriate stimulations by interleukins to become either a Th1 or Th2 cell with specific functions to help regulate both the humoral and cell-mediated immune system. Specifically, Th1 cells are involved in the regulation of the cell-mediated response. They are activated by antigen-presenting cells by the secretion of IL-12 and the secretion of interferon gamma which activates antigen-presenting cells for efficient killing. They also secrete IL-2, which activates CD8 cytotoxic T-cells to kill virally infected cells. Th2 cells, on the other hand, are activated by the secretion of IL-4. They activate B-cells and enhance isotype switching by secreting IL-4, IL-5, and IL-6. 
they are also involved in recruiting eosinophils for parasite defense. Another category of the CD4 T-cell is the regulatory T-cell, otherwise known as T-regs, or formerly known as the suppressor T-cells. These cells maintain specific immune tolerance by decreasing the activity of CD4 and CD8 T-cells. They are activated by anti-inflammatory signals such as IL-10 and TGF-beta. CD8 T-cells, otherwise known as cytotoxic T-cells, are the cells responsible for seeking out and eliminating virus or parasite-infected cells, cancer cells, and other foreign cells. It is important to understand the main steps involved when viral antigen is taken up by an antigen-presenting cell to the point at which the CD8 T-cells are seeking and destroying the infected cells. This process has three main steps. First, when an antigen-presenting cell like a dendritic cell or macrophage is exposed to a viral antigen, it will load the antigen onto the MHC2 protein for presentation to a CD4 T-cell. It will also express a co-stimulatory signal on its cell membrane. The T-cell receptor or TCR can then interact with the antigen-positive MHC2 protein on the antigen-presenting cell. This is known as the first signal. However, a single signal is not enough. The immune system's checks and balances require a second signal for appropriate activation to occur. The B7 co-stimulatory signal on the antigen-presenting cell must interact with the CD28 on the CD4 T-cell while the TCR-MHC2 interaction is occurring. If these conditions are met, the CD4 T-cell will release interferon gamma to stimulate the antigen-presenting cell to efficiently kill its pathogen. The CD4 T-cell will also release IL-2, which serves two purposes. The first is to cause activation and proliferation of CD8 cytotoxic T-cells to kill virally infected host cells, and the second purpose of IL-2 is to cause the CD4 T-cell proliferation and differentiation in an autocrine manner. These steps are illustrated in figure 6.7. It is important to consider what happens when a TCR recognizes and binds to host antigens or does not get both the signals. In the healthy immune system, this is handled by energy, or deactivating the self-reactive T-cell. If this process fails, it could potentially lead to the development of an autoimmune disease. As with B-cells, T-cell deficiencies syndromes exist and lead to immunodeficiencies. Now we'll take a look at some of those. The first is severe combined immunodeficiency, otherwise known as SCID. The most common form is X-linked SCID, followed by adenosine deaminase deficiency. They both result in susceptibility to numerous pathogenic infections and diseases. Another T-cell deficient syndrome is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, otherwise known as AIDS. The final stage in the decremental quantity and quality of T-cell immunity, particularly CD4 cells, is caused by infection with HIV. Another important T-cell deficiency is DeGeorge syndrome. This occurs with a 22Q11.2 deletion resulting in the mnemonic CATCH22 which stands for cardiac defects, abnormal facies, thymic hypoplasia, cleft palate, and hypocalcemia.
Another syndrome, ataxia telangiectasia, is a T-cell deficiency that presents with ataxia due to cerebellar dysfunction and increased risk for various cancer types through impaired double-stranded DNA repair. Hyper-IgE syndrome, or Job syndrome, has an unclear pathophysiology, but likely is secondary to impaired interferon gamma secretion, leading to an impaired neutrophil hemataxis. Remember the mnemonic FADED with a T. The F stands for coarse facies. The A stands for abscesses, which are characteristically known as cold abscesses caused by staphylococcus. The T stands for retained primary teeth. The E stands for elevated levels of IgE. And the D stands for dermatologic conditions. So remember the mnemonic FATED for hyper-IgE or job syndrome. The final important T-cell deficiency that we will talk about is Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. This is an excellent recessive condition caused by a mutation in the WAS gene, resulting in T-cells inability to reorganize actin cytoskeleton. This syndrome can be remembered by the mnemonic WATER. The W and A stand for Wiscott-Aldrich. The T stands for thrombocytopenic purpura. The E stands for eczema, and the R stands for recurrent infections. Now that we have an understanding of T-cell interactions, let's take a look at the high-yield cytokines and interleukins. IL-1 is an acute phase reactant synthesized by macrophages contributing to the acute inflammatory response, including fever, leukocyte recruitment, adhesion molecule activation, and stimulation of further chemokine production. IL-2 is secreted by Th cells, and it enables growth, maturation, and proliferation of CD4 and CD8 T cells. IL-3 stimulates the bone marrow. IL-4 is secreted by Th2 cells to further B cell development, as well as to enhance immunoglobulin class type switching to IgG. IL-5 is secreted by Th2 cells also, and it enhances immunoglobulin class type switching to IgA and increases production of eosinophils. IL-6, like IL-1, is an acute phase reactant produced by both Th cells and macrophages to further the acute inflammatory response. IL-6 also stimulates antibody production in fever. IL-8 is a neutrophil chemotactic factor, otherwise recruiting neutrophils. IL-10 is secreted by regulatory T-cells in order to suppress cell-mediated immunity and stimulate humoral immunity. IL-12 is secreted by macrophages and functions to enhance natural killer cells and T-cells. Now... Let's dive into the complement system. The complement system is often confusing, but it can be simplified fairly easily. It's a system of liver-derived serum proteins that, once activated, triggers a cascade of proteolytic 
cleavage reactions to further the cascade and convert proproteins into functional active immune system constituents. There are three main initial pathways that may be taken to ultimately activate C5 and initiate the final common pathway, which is the formation of the membrane attack complex or the MAC complex. There are three different complement pathways. The first, known as the classical pathway, which is activated by antigen-antibody complexes. The second pathway is the menin-binding lectin pathway, which is one activated by microbial lectin particles. And the third pathway is the alternative pathway, which is activated by microbial surfaces such as LPS and endotoxin. The complement system in each of these pathways are illustrated in figure 6.8. The complement system has five main functions, each carried out by certain C components. The first and most essential function of the complement system is opsonization, and this is carried out by C3B. Another function is neutrophil chemotaxis, carried out by C5A. A third function is viral neutralization, carried out by C1, C2, C3, and C4. Lysis of organisms is another important function, carried out by the membrane attack complex, which uses C5B through C9. And the fifth main function of the complement system is for anaphylactic reactions, carried out by C3A and C5A. As with B and T cell deficiencies, Complement deficiencies are associated with certain conditions. C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency causes hereditary angioedema. These patients cannot take ACE inhibitors. Decay accelerating factor deficiency or CD55 deficiency results in paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. This syndrome can also be caused by a deficiency in protectin or CD59. A C3 deficiency results in a propensity to develop severe recurrent pyogenic infections of the sinus and respiratory tracts. A deficiency in MAC complex components, C5 through C9, results in a propensity to develop Neisseria bacteremia. With that, we conclude the complement section and will now move on to the hypersensitivity reactions. These reactions or responses are divided into four types. The first type is type 1 and it is commonly associated with allergies. These reactions occur when presensitized mast cells or basophils with antigen specific IgE are exposed to a particular antigen. The antigen binds the FAB portion of the IgE resulting in cross-linking and subsequent immediate release of preformed vasoactive substances like histamine. Anaphylactic reactions occur in this fashion through a type 1 reaction resulting in fast and widespread vasodilation and subsequent hypotensive shock. Bee stings and peanuts are common causes of anaphylaxis. Disorders associated with type 1 hypersensitivity reactions are allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis or eczema, urticaria or hives, asthma, and anaphylaxis. Type 1 responses are commonly used in testing by allergists who use scratch tests 
in which positive test results in a wheel and flare reaction of the scratch skin site. Type 2 reactions are antibody-dependent cytotoxic reactions. These occur when either IgM or IgG antibodies bind to a cell surface antigen, resulting in cytotoxic destruction by a few possible mechanisms. These mechanisms include optimization for histiocytes and neutrophils, activation of complement, and interference with cellular functioning. Type 2 responses occur in disorders such as autoimmune hemolytic anemia, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, acute transfusion reactions with hemolysis, rheumatic fever, good pasture syndrome, bolus pemphigoid, pemphigus vulgaris, Graves' disease, and myasthenia gravis. Type 2 responses are used in testing, such as direct and indirect Coombs tests for RBCs for hemolytic anemia and direct immunofluorescence of glomerular basement membrane for good pasture syndrome. Type 3 responses are known as immune complex diseases. These reactions occur when antigen antibody, mainly IgG, Complexes form and are deposited in tissues, resulting in activation of the complement system and recruitment of neutrophils and leading to tissue injury. Historically, the Arthrus reaction resulted from intradermal injection of antigen, which resulted in a type 3 reaction in the underlying skin, causing edema and necrosis. Disorders associated with type 3 responses include systemic lupus erythematosus, Rheumatoid arthritis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, serum sickness, and post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Testing that involves type 3 responses include the main mode of testing for immunofluorescence staining. The fourth and final hypersensitivity response is type 4, known as delayed hypersensitivity or antibody-independent cytotoxicity. Type 4 reactions are the only hypersensitivity reactions that are not antibody-mediated, and this cannot be transferred through serum. These cell-mediated reactions occur in a delayed fashion after a previously exposed T-cell interacts with the same antigen, resulting in a lymphokine production and subsequent activation of other immune system players like macrophages. Disorders involving type 4 hypersensitivity responses include contact dermatitis to things such as nickel allergy and exposure to poison ivy and oak, the PPD skin test for tuberculosis, graft-versus-host disease, multiple sclerosis, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now that we have covered the hypersensitivity responses, we will move on to the final part of the chapter, which is transplantation immunology. Immunology is a critical factor whenever transplanting material with foreign antigens into a patient, whether it is a blood transfusion, a bone marrow transplant, or a solid organ transplant. It is important to consider the types of tissue transplants. An autograft is a transplantation of tissue back to the same host in a different location, a common example would be skin grafting from one site to another. An allograft is the transplantation of tissue from one human to another, such as is commonly performed in a solid organ transplantation. A xenograft 
is a tissue transplantation from a different animal species to a human. There are different types of rejection which must also be considered. Hyperacute rejection is a very rapid form of rejection occurring within minutes to hours of transplantation as a result of host antibodies binding to donor tissue endothelium. This results in complement activation and neutrophil migration into the donor graft. Acute rejection is a T-cell-mediated rejection occurring within weeks to months after transplantation. This is the primary form of rejection for which immunosuppressant medications are used. This is the only form of rejection that can be acutely reversed by increased immunosuppressant dosing. Chronic rejection is a long-term form of rejection in which there is a progressive loss of function of the transplanted organ or tissue secondary to vascular fibrosis. When dealing with transplants, it is important to consider the high-yield immunosuppressant drugs. Azathioprine is a prodrug converted enzymatically in vivo to 6-mercaptopurine, or 6-MP, which acts to inhibit purine metabolism. Inhibition of purine metabolism preferentially affects proliferating cells such as T and B cells. It is used both in autoimmune disorders and in acute rejection. Cyclosporine binds to cyclophilin, which inhibits calcineurin and therefore prevents transcription of IL-2 in T-lymphocytes. Cyclosporine is used primarily in tissue transplantation. Another similar drug, tarcolimus, binds to FK-binding protein, but otherwise inhibits calcineurin and therefore IL-2, similarly. It is used primarily as an alternative to cyclosporine in renal and liver transplantation recipients. Serolimus is similar to tarcolimus in that it binds FKBP to block T-cell activation and B-cell differentiation by inhibiting IL-2 signal transduction. It is used in similar circumstances as cyclosporine and tacrolimus, but in addition, it is also used in drug-eluting stents. Glucocorticoids are other important drugs used to suppress both T and B cell function by decreasing cytokine transcription. The final high-yield aminosuppressant drug is mycophenolate mofetil. It inhibits inosine monophosphate dehydrogenase, which is the rate-limiting enzyme in guanosine monophosphate synthesis in the de novo purine synthesis pathway. Inhibition of purine synthesis inhibits replication of T and B cells. This drug is primarily used in renal, heart, and liver transplant recipients. With that, we conclude the immunology section. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step One, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.